this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. You know, when we're feeling in a bragging mood around Big Talk headquarters, we like to say about our program, we chat with Bloomington's most fascinating people. The idea being, this town is filled with people. People who live, work, teach, research, and study here. Whose lives and labors are compelling and make for gripping radio. We introduce you to your neighbors, your town folk, people you might bump into, say, while walking around Courthouse Square. But because we're a major college town, we draw visitors from all over the world. And occasionally, we here at Big Talk have chatted with people like that as well. For example, we were fortunate enough to record two people who dropped in on Bloomington in recent years, people who aren't Bloomingtonians, but whose work affects us profoundly. Those two were Samantha Power and Pete Buttigieg. Power came to Indiana University in March 2018 to talk about the world, specifically ethnic and tribal conflicts in some of the globe's hotspots. At the time, she was fresh off serving as United States Ambassador to the United Nations, a post she was named to by President Barack Obama in 2013. A year before Power came to town, a young fellow hoping to make a name for himself came to Bloomington to speak to a gathering of Democratic women voters at a house meet-and-greet. That was in June 2017. He hadn't announced it yet at the time, but it was clear Pete Buttigieg had his eye on the White House. He did run in the 2020 Democratic primaries, winning the very first contest, the Iowa caucuses, in January of that year. He went on to garner nearly a million popular votes over the next few weeks, but eventually dropped out of the race by March. Both Samantha Power and Pete Buttigieg now serve in high-ranking positions within the Biden administration. Power today heads the United States Agency for International Development. Buttigieg was named Biden's Secretary of Transportation. Let's dip into the Big Talk archives for some cuts from our recordings of Power and Buttigieg. We'll start with an excerpt from an address Power gave to open the America's Role in the World Conference at the IU School of Global and International Studies. I just want to share with you an anecdote um, from just after the election. So I led a very small team at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. of American diplomats. Most of the people I had the privilege of working with over my four years in New York were career diplomats, foreign service officers, civil service officers. I had a town hall after the election because I thought some of the people who worked on my team might be upset because Trump had threatened in the campaign uh, to undo the Iran deal, the Paris Agreement, uh, TPP, you know, a bunch of issues that my multilateral diplomats who worked at the UN had either been centrally involved in or peripherally involved in. So I thought, you know, we should talk and we should air and we should see how people were feeling it was incredibly important we have a smooth transition. And so it was my responsibility to, to engage them and, and make sure everybody was on track. So the first speaker uh, who got up was um, a very feisty uh, Foreign Service officer. And she said the following, look, I don't agree with a lot of the things Trump has said, but he doesn't seem to have a lot of people experienced in foreign policy in his inner circle. He and his team will need us. 
And we will have the same duty to our country and the same privilege of serving our country on January 20th as we had when we served George W. Bush and Barack Obama. We will keep serving this country. That is what we do. That is what we do. And this set the tone. I heard comment after comment that was like that. And again, these were people, they're now unfortunately ridiculed uh, as deep state people or Obama holdovers, but they'd worked for George W. Bush, they worked for Obama, and they were so inspiring in terms of their patriotism and their commitment to, to service. So I left, you know, I thought I was going to be consoling them and, you know, bucking them up, but I left uh, feeling, you know, much better about the transition ahead. Now, unfortunately, many of the people who were the most vocal that day and the most important, certainly, on my team on sanctions against North Korea or building that international law on ISIS have left the government very reluctantly. Uh, it just actually in, in recent months, I'd say in the last four or five months, having not felt uh, as if they were making a sufficient difference to live with some of the other aspects of, of service right now. And that's very uh, damaging. and and. Uh, it's something that we are going to have to address or the consequences will be felt for decades to come. It was a beautiful spring morning when Pete Buttigieg came to town at a time when, we know now in retrospect, he was seriously considering a run for the presidency. He sat in the living room of Bloomington's Charlotte Zitlow and spoke with a group of Democratic women. Here were his opening remarks that day. If you haven't been to South Bend lately, I'd encourage you to come see it. It's uh, a city that's been through a lot. I think we're we're sometimes mistaken for being a, a college town, uh, but you know we were really more of an industrial city than anything. We were the company town for Studebaker. In many respects, the the South Bend I grew up in was was a company town that had lost its company, and was figuring out what our future was going to be. Many of you I got to know in 2009, 2010, when I was trying to warn everybody about Richard Murdoch running for state treasurer. Shortly after that race, I, I headed back to South Bend, and I was figuring out what I was going to do next when the mayor announced he wasn't going to run again, creating the first open seat in 24 years in, in South Bend. And we were in a pretty rough spot, uh, especially in terms of the community's self-perception. We had a lot of good things going on, actually, but people weren't ready to, to acknowledge it or admit it. And, and the real wake-up call came when Newsweek uh, showed up in town with a, an article saying we were one of America's ten dying cities. And uh, that may have been the best thing that ever happened to us because uh, it provoked a real conversation about uh, how we were going to make sure that we, we were a city that was going to make it. What, what I'm very proud of uh, when it comes to our community, six years later, having uh, entered the race that, that same week that that article came out, is that we're seeing our fastest population growth in a quarter of a century. Uh, we've seen tens of millions of dollars of investment in the heart of our city and in our neighborhoods, especially our most economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. We've been able to address more than a thousand vacant and abandoned houses. Uh, and the ones that couldn't be saved, we've been able to remove. And we've now got projects like uh, South Bend Mutual Homes, uh, which creates low and moderate income housing on, on a co-op model so that the, the governance decisions are made by the people who live there, but they also get financial support and financial counseling as part of uh, the package. It's almost like a utility. You get your water, you get your electric, and you get your advice on how to build a stable financial future. And we think that's the, the best way we can empower our residents. Uh, you know, the, the jury is in on the difference between a uh, a segregated community and an integrated community. And when you have low-income people uh, living in integrated neighborhoods, the low-income people are better off, and the middle and high-income people are no worse off 
So it, it's a no-brainer, uh, except for that hurdle of getting people used to the idea. Uh, we have a downtown that's starting to feel like a downtown again. So, uh, you know, our downtown was a product of that period when all of, of uh, engineering and traffic designing was, was centered around the car. Uh, my favorite metaphor for this, one of our planners uh, showed, was, uh, you know, before the Copernican Revolution, when we didn't understand that, uh, that, that, that the sun was in the middle and we were all going around it and we thought the Earth was the center of the universe, the astronomers had to create the most bizarre and elaborate uh, orbital drawings to try to explain what was happening. You'd see the moon going this way and the stars going that way, and if they were all revolving around the Earth, the only way to explain it was that the celestial bodies were moving about in these crazy curly cues until they realized the Earth wasn't the center of the universe and everything was actually or orbiting in very neat little elliptical orbits. The, the metaphor that our planners used is if you have the car in the middle of your universe, then people have to go around it in all these crazy ways and bicycles and money and, and housing and design. Uh, whereas if you put the person in the center and let the car revolve around the person rather than the other way around, you have a whole different mentality for how the city ought to be organized. And people are pretty mad at me. I'm going to cut the ribbon Friday on a project whose main purpose was to slow traffic down. Uh, not something that necessarily computes uh, at, at first blush with, with folks who have a, a, a car first mentality. But what we found is that the cars will be perfectly fine. They'll be a couple minutes slower getting from one end of town to the other. And in return for that cost, that couple minutes time that we've added to people's commutes, we have a downtown that feels like a city again, that people would want to walk around, that invites those chance encounters that make a city what it is and uh, have led to enhanced street life, uh, better cultural life, and already we're seeing more business investment. Buildings we thought we might have to tear down are now uh, getting the, the kind of rehabilitation that, that's needed. We've got industries rising in South Bend that uh, didn't exist when the last Studebaker rolled off the line or when I was born, for that matter. We've got a data center industry on the very campus, the old Studebaker grounds. We've got a, a million-square-foot facility that I always thought we'd have to blow up one day um, that we're repopulating thanks to new industries. But we're also manufacturing, and we're still making things, and we're good at it. And figuring out the difference between the kinds of companies uh, and the kinds of workers who can send their goods to Asia rather than send their jobs to Asia, I think is the name of the game for economic development right now. So we've got a lot of good things going on as a city. And uh, I think any mayor tries to contain the impact of any state or national politics on the city because it's usually when you're close to the earth that, that, that you feel like the problems are getting solved. And I know there's a lot of local officials here, and you know how to, you know, half the time, uh, if uh, the, the other authorities would just let us do our thing, we'd be in pretty good shape. But uh, we're in an environment nationally that, that can't be ignored. You know, uh, incidents of bullying uh, have gone up in our schools. Um, there is a, a sense of, I think, uh, uh, toxicity or, or hostility that's going on. And I think as Democrats, we're, we're increasingly fixated on the show in Washington because, uh, like anything grotesque, when you see it, you can't take your eyes off it. And we've got to figure out a way to pay attention as we must to what's going on in our country uh, and yet not lose the ability to articulate what we're for because uh, the truth is that our values and our policies have led to a lot of good things. 
If you look back on the Obama administration, you will see the reversal of what almost became a Great Depression, the restoration of the American auto industry, the extension of health benefits to millions of people. Um, it is an extraordinary track record. And we need to reestablish the, the bedrock of what we talk about and think about in politics as uh, the impact on ordinary people. The, the core of our party has always been that we protect ordinary people. We've got to get back to that. On the way down here, I can't get it out of my mind, uh, yesterday we visited Scott County. My, my mother's from Scottsburg. Um, there's an old, uh, uh, I don't think it's a hotel anymore, but there was a, a very modest brick uh, hotel on the town square in Scottsburg that uh, my great-grandmother uh, owned and, and cooked and, and, and ran and ironed sheets. and um, It was a real envi a great environment for my mother to grow up in in, in, in the 40s and 50s. And it was, I was fighting back tears uh, when I sat down with the health officials uh, yesterday and listened to what they were up against in a place like uh, uh, Austin, where there are 4,200 residents and 600 people on that needle exchange. People need our help. People need our help more than ever. And I don't care who they voted for. And they don't care who Jeff Sessions is. Um, they just want to know that they're going to be okay. And taking care of low-income people, taking care of sick people, and taking care of people who are uh, struggling to make it but uh, can and should and, and will succeed with the right kind of support is, I think, what we're all about. Uh, I think one of the beautiful differences between our town halls and their town halls, if you remember the Tea Party town halls in, in 2010, is that ours consisted of people speaking to power about what was going on in their own lives. And I think the more we can talk and think about, as our North Star, what's happening in regular people's lives and organize our politics around that, uh, the better we're going to be politically, but also the better we're going to be morally and policy-wise. So that's the conversation I'm trying to have with, with leaders and, and, and activists uh, in the Democratic Party in Indiana, at home, and anywhere else they'll invite me to a chicken dinner. As you may know, I had this kind of crazy experience uh, earlier this year running for DNC chair, which uh, um, there is no better crash course, I think, in American politics than to run for party chair. Um, we traveled to I don't know how many states. Uh, I'd be on the phone with uh, Texas one minute and North Dakota the next and uh, New York the next after that. Uh, it's like national office. We were on television. We were on CNN debating. Um, and yet it's also like a student council race. There are 447 voters. They all know each other. They're all characters. I mean, think of all, think of all your characters in, in Monroe County politics, right? And then just imagine that every county's got a similar cast of characters, right? So imagine what, you know, uh, Montgomery, Alabama's version of, uh, uh, of, of your Monroe County characters would be. And, and imagine then turning around and, and finding out Guam's version of those characters, just one after the other. It was wonderful. But what we found is a party that's, that's, uh, really got some work to do if we want to be able to explain what we're for and uh, and couple uh, the energy of our commitment to resistance of what is wrong uh, with our uh, our recollection of what is right and our ability to have some, some contagion uh, to that. And I think we're poised to do it. I think the political environment right now, as unsteady and frightening as it is, is also very fertile. If you remember, even in uh, uh, 2005, after... Uh, uh, the re-election of George W. Bush. Remember how many groups and ideas and, and candidates sprung forth after that? Um, I think it was the most fertile, up until now, I think it was the most fertile uh, time in my lifetime for our side of the aisle. So this being about 100 times worse than what happened in 2004, I expect it to be 100 times more fertile, too, um, because there's, there's no time like the present. And uh, I think I'll just close with this. I, I, 
colleague on my campaign team who was watching everything that was happening as the president took office and said, you know, this is the universe punishing me for telling my parents that I envied them living in the 60s because that seems so interesting. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of those moments that, you know, I'll have a grandkid on my knee uh, asking what it was like to be alive and in politics in 2017. And, uh, and so we're, we're, we're long going to remember what we do right now, and that's why it's so important. Our microphone was able to pick up Buttigieg nearly perfectly, but when the time came for a Q&A session, the voices of questioners came through far less well. To remedy that, I'll repeat the questions here, and then we'll go right into Buttigieg's answers. The first question was, In the 70s, many cities closed down major commercial arteries and turned them into pedestrian malls. How is your plan for South Bend different from what cities did and failed at in the 70s? So there was a, uh, there was a similar move in South Bend in the 1980s. Michigan Street was made into a pedestrian mall. Uh, and I think for that reason, people are very suspicious of sort of fashionable traffic planning moves. Um, what we're doing is taking a, a one-way pair. US 31 actually runs right through South Bend. Mm -hmm. And it's a four-lane highway uh, in each direction effectively designed to evacuate downtown at the very moment when I'm trying to repopulate downtown. And it's a very hostile environment to be walking alongside. You're on a sidewalk and next to you is four lanes of cars going as fast as they can out of town. And so the idea was to uh, restore a two-way traffic pattern and a flow that is a little, a little calmer, a little slower. That's why people are grumpy. Um, but also a little more compatible with, with street life. And, and the way we talk about it is um, Rather than viewing this as a kind of another newfangled uh, planner's idea in the tradition of pedestrian malls that's, uh, that's risky and, and may not work and could be counterproductive, um, I prefer to describe it as a restoration of a traffic pattern that has generally been favored over the last three or 4,000 years of human development, except for a little period beginning in the 60s when people thought it was a good idea to run highways through the hearts of downtowns. Um, and so, in many ways, it's a, it's a return to what worked very well for us in the past, um, but with, with a, bit, uh, a bit more of a future orientation around how it ought to work. Um, but we have had to overcome that. And something a little deeper and more concerning, I think, which is a, there's a great suspicion of expertise. Uh, and some of that might be healthy, because uh, we've all had you know, people coming along with uh, fads that you know, uh, uh, turn out not to be all they're cracked up to be. But I think there's also, a, you know, a little bit of pressure on the idea of uh, professional experts, uh, academia, uh, really the Enlightenment itself is under pressure. Uh, and, and that's certainly part of the national political climate, that if somebody says, you know, climate scientists have advised us that uh, this is a, a problem and somebody else says, no, it isn't, <laughs> uh, and doesn't offer an argument, um, that's actually ex uh, accepted in, in some political conversations. And it makes my job a lot harder to say, look, we've analyzed the traffic engineering data here, and I can tell you how many minutes we're going to lose, and I can tell you how many uh, dollars of investment we're going to gain, and I can tell you why we think it's worth it, and what the margin of error is around all those predictions we made. Um, but we've got to have some confidence that uh, when we use data and, 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 uh, uh, and knowledge and education to arrive at a conclusion that there's some value to that. And I think that's uh, that's shouldn't be a partisan issue, but at a time when, um, you know, the, the the usefulness of facts has gone from a universally accepted premise to a politically contested idea, we've we got some work to do on that front too. Yet another questioner asked Pete Buttigieg, 
How did you manage the economic revitalization of South Bend? There's a lot of focus on tax abatements and TIFs. How do you incentivize economic growth without reinforcing corporate welfare? The big problem with a, um, a tax abatement or an incentive is, by definition, any dollar more than the least you could have used is, is money wasted, right? But you never know where that line is. And especially for a smaller community, you know, our ability to do due diligence when a developer comes in and says, you know, I've, I've got this project and it's going to have all these jobs and there's this return on investment. If you just this little gap, you just fill in this little gap for me, we'll get it done. Um, you kind of just looking them in the eye, seeing if you believe them, right? And so I realized very quickly that we had to put some guardrails around this. Uh, first thing we did was we established a, a ratio that anytime we were going to commit a public dollar, even if it was in the form of a tax abatement, we expected to see a private developer bringing at least five to the table. And um, the interesting thing is, uh, within a year, as we, we sort of made that an, an unwritten rule, um, developers started to catch on. And pretty soon when they came to see us, uh, they'd say, you know, we got this great project, all these jobs, ROI, and there's just this little gap. And that little gap always worked out to exactly 20%. <laughs> so they responded. And now we're in the process of dialing it down because I think one of the things that, that has changed even since 2012 when I took office is at that time we were eager, not to say desperate, to inspire any development at all. And if somebody looked kind of, you know, capable of delivering and not criminal, we were probably going to want to work with them. Now I think we incentives have a very different role and they're less about making sure something happens at all and they're more about shaping it to make sure that whatever happens, happens in a way that benefits the public. That's where we, I think we can use incentives, for example, as a tool uh, towards, um, uh, towards encouraging low and moderate income housing. So before we weren't in a position to be very picky. I think now we can say, look, we'll, we'll work with you, but if you want the taxpayer to get involved in this, uh, here's some things that as a policy matter we as taxpayers expect, and deal or no deal. And I think we have a stronger hand to do that. Um, because you do have to ask why, you know, why is it worth intervening in the market? You know, and a conservative can appreciate this too, right? Why should there be a taxpayer intervention in the marketplace? Um, and, uh, you know, establishing those policy guidelines because, to, you know, to, I will defend TIF. You know, legislators always, especially some state senator gets mad at some mayor. Next thing you know, TIF is, is in danger. I will defend it as something that has made it possible for us to do some magnificent things. But... Um, that flexibility comes with a lot of responsibility to figure out some kind of policy behind this. Otherwise, it'll be whatever feels good that, that month or that year. And, uh, and that's where you start, I think, giving away taxpayer value. Last thing I want to mention on economic development that's been our experience is I think there used to be a mentality around economic development that was, it was what we called smokestack chasing. It was, you know, you go after, uh, you know, hope you can lure some factory to come over. Um, almost like you could buy jobs. And one problem with that is the, the businesses most responsive to that sort of incentive are the least sticky. And they're actually the least likely to stick around even if you do land them. So we've started thinking about uh, real estate will always matter, but we're also thinking less about real estate than we are about people. You know, most of my employers are telling me that their biggest problem has to do with uh, being able to hire the right people to grow. And I'm not just talking about PhDs. I was on the phone yesterday with a sheet metal uh, company. It says, look, I, I need, I don't know what I'm going to do. I need more people. 
Um, and that actually brings us full circle to the importance of quality of place. Because I know that if we have an inviting streetscape and uh, a, a good brewery and a nice place to eat and, and, and it's, it's safe and it feels good, people are going to want to live there. Just like people want to be in Bloomington because it's Bloomington. And then they find a job. They don't necessarily come here for a job. Some people do. Um, but we got to stop thinking about jobs as binary. Either you have a job or you don't have a job. Uh, most people can get some kind of job. But they'll be the, the better your community is as a place to live, the bigger gap I'll accept between my dream job and the best job I can get in that place that I move to simply because I want to live there. Just like there's a job so compelling, I'd move to Antarctica to do it, right? There's a spectrum here, and I think we've got to pay more attention to that. Finally, this question for Pete Buttigieg. And this is particularly relevant today as he runs the nation's federal transportation department. How would you coordinate and strategize all the different forms of transportation? The car, the bus, bicycles, walking and biking trails, taxis, Uber, Lyft, and so on. This is a real puzzle for, for us. I think we're in a moment where there's a lot more possibilities around transportation with ride sharing, with um, bike sharing. Uh, I typically bike to work or, or drive, but um, occasionally I'll take our bus. And you, you get to talking to the people on the bus and you realize that the hub and spoke system just doesn't really work for the way a lot of people need to get around. Um, and yet we're able now to collect data on where people go that was never possible before. We actually uh, uh, had a fascinating conversation with um, a video game designer. So uh, if you heard of this game Warcraft, World of Warcraft, you got all these, uh, it's this imaginary world where people are, are kind of all over. And it turns out that once you've created the technology to track different people and their status and what they're doing across a massive geography, even if the geography is made up, that technology is very useful uh, and can be applied to a real geography. Mm -hmm. And so in New Zealand, the bus system started using this platform to figure out where all their buses were and where the riders were going. And what they found was, first of all, the buses weren't always where they were supposed to be. <laughs> the drivers weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. But also you could get a better understanding of how the trips worked. Um, our challenge is, you know, on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis, it's not obvious that, uh, uh, that it's cheaper to the system as a whole for somebody to be uh, on a bus than it is for them to get an Uber. It's cheaper for the rider right now, but, uh, but it's not necessarily cheaper for the system. And so it, it feels as though there may be new kinds of solutions to get people, especially that last mile to get people to work. Uh, if you're at a distribution center, chances are you're on the edge of the developed area. And yet those are the jobs that are really on those first rungs of the economic ladder. You know, they're paying more than 10 bucks an hour, but they're not high-paying jobs. Um, they're lifting some people out of poverty, or they could be in our city, but you still got to get there. And I'm talking to a guy on the bus with me who is, is getting up, taking a bus that only runs once an hour to get downtown so that he can get to the edge of town. He was in a pretty good mood because it was his first day of work at the tire rack, which is this big um, uh, auto distribution center. But I'm not sure he's going to be in such a good mood in the winter about taking that kind of a commute to get to a job that, uh, that pays, uh, I'm guessing, you know, 10 maybe $12 an hour. Samantha Power and Pete Buttigieg. They aren't technically Bloomingtonians, but they've contributed to political and social discourse here, and their current jobs in federal government affect us directly and in the long term. Thanks for listening. <laughs>